Uh, well, good morning, Redemption Church. So good to be with you this morning. And uh, as we get underway, you know, I was thinking about the fact that as I get older, I think I'm getting wiser in some ways. Not in all ways, but in some ways. And, and one of the things I've tried to do over the last handful of years is be a bit more conscientious about kind of my physical, my emotional, my spiritual, my intellectual health. And so I've made conscious decisions uh, to do things a little bit differently just to sort of mitigate some of the challenges and, and kind of level out some of the bumps in life and that kind of thing. And so kind of took on a physical regimen to just eat better and exercise and things like that. And that immensely helped me in kind of my my emotional makeup and internal makeup. But the other thing I did is started making conscious decisions about intake. And, and what I mean by that is about seven years ago, I stopped watching all cable news. Just removed it, right? Just like, we're done with this, you know? And so pretty much I wake up in the morning and I just kind of hit a handful of websites. I give myself about 10 minutes. So I go to Fox News and I go, yes, liberals are still evil. And then I go to MSNBC and I go, yes, conservatives are still evil. I got it. They got their branding. And then I go to Slate, same thing. And I go to OWN, same thing. And I get the idea that there's just this divided thing. And I just kind of go, okay, in 10 minutes, I'm done, all right? And that's good enough for me. I also did things like I got rid of my laptop completely so that I have to go and sit down at a desktop computer if I want to work or look up information. Massively changed my life. On my phone, I have no social media. Completely stripped it down. I don't even have a web browser on my phone. Took it off. I'm like, I just want to kind of sit in space. I want to contemplate things and think about things and be meditative on things. Because what I realized is all of this information coming at us all the time, driving, pushing, calling out to us, I realized that the majority of that was designed to destroy any sense of hope for the future. <laughs> Right? Like, honestly, it's like just as soon as you go to it, you see, right, depending on the outlet, it's like, hey, how we're handling the environment or how we don't handle it is going to destroy the future and how our politics are happening is going to destroy the future and this side drinks the blood of puppies and this side slits the throats of bunnies and just all of the mess and the cacophony of discouragement that's found there. And so I'm like, man, I just don't want that anymore because so much of it just destroys any sense of confidence or joy or anticipation that tomorrow might be better than today. It's just amazing that way. And I see this especially when I talk to millennials or Gen Z personality types, where they in particular have just been kind of reared in an environment where that noise is perpetual all the time. And because of that, they're like, you know what, we have anxiety, we have depression, we have fear, we have doubt about the future, we don't think it's going to turn out great. And it's really tragic, because when I was growing up, um, you know, like a lot of the shows and, 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 and movies and things like that, especially like in the sci-fi genre, were actually kind of giving us a picture of a hopeful better tomorrow where now it's like the last of us or the walking dead or silo like everything's about did you know that tomorrow might all fall apart on you right it just feels that way and we feel the pressure and the weight of that i mean again even in the political discourse it just sounds so much like if we don't get a hold of everything now we will implode under the weight of a civil war as a culture and so it's why then a psalm like the one we are looking at today is so necessary. Because what it shouts into the darkness with the light of God is fear not, doubt not, dread not. Because your God is bigger than the fears that you feel. If anything, today's psalm is about a song of confidence if you want it. If you want it. Because to move toward confidence, I will tell you, is some work. 
especially when we are hearing the voices all the time wanting to defeat us, it's easy to just lean into the defeat. But if we want confidence, we want courage, we want to move forward in faith over fear, man, today is the psalm for you. And so we are looking at Psalm 27 today. We've seen different psalms. We've seen David talking about, man, I see God's word in creation and in canon. We've seen David be desperate and discouraged for God. We've seen a psalmist be somewhat angry at the sense of abandonment of God. But today, man, God is on the spot, right? And he gives this fuel for the stuff of life. And so uh, before we pray, I just want to remind you that we have an app. In the app are going to be a bunch of notes today as far as like blanks to fill in. There's like nine subpoints total, but they're going to move fast. We're going to be just blazing through this thing. It's not going to be a bunch of time. It's going to be like popcorn nuggets of uh, reminder, encouragement, and example as we go. And so right now I want to go ahead and pray for us this morning, get underway, and then jump right into our text for the day. Jesus, boy, I thank you. I thank you that in the rough of life, you offer a way to smooth out those rough spots. In the hardships and challenges of life, you are willing to step in and walk with us and shoulder us, you say in Matthew 11, because you are lowly and gentle in heart and, you, and we're gonna find rest for our souls when we're close to you. I thank you that life is in fact better with you, right? That you help us, guide us, encourage us, inspire us, remind us, kind of reform us even at times. Sometimes you even sort of discipline us because you love us so that we would be more of what you want us to be and we would be more unleashed for you in that process. And so I pray today that we will learn from our friend David. We will see both his, his message and his example and that we will seek to parrot what we see. And so we thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your goodness toward us. And so we look to you this morning to guide us in your awesome and perfect name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 27 is in the center of a trilogy. So chapter 26, or Psalm 26, 27 and 28, that's the trilogy. This is the Empire Strikes Back of the trilogy, all right? Right there tucked in the middle. And it's profound. Of the three, it's probably the most profound because it's going to talk about God's perfection and God's joy and God's loyalty and how we can then trust God because of his loyalty. It's all in there. And so if you're taking notes, we're going to start snapping these off quick because we're going to start with the first thing we need to know as we get into the psalm. And there's this idea of fear. When it comes to fear, if we want to fight the fear of life, it is found in the security of God. That's how we fight it. In other words, we don't fight fear by fighting the thing that creates the fear. That is the way of the world, right? Like, oh, you're my concern. You're my mortal foe. You're my cultural adversary. I must fight you to deal with my fear. No, that's not necessarily where David's going to go with this whole thing. He's going to say, no, we've got to really lean into God and his security to fight the fears of life. So we start in verse 1. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? Now, a couple of things stand out to me as far as why I love this so much. First of all, he makes statements, and then he follows them up with reflective questions, right? God is this for me, so why should I get pulled into the weeds of my concerns and my doubts and my worries if God is this in my life? That's one thing I love about this. The other thing, though, is it's incredibly personal, he doesn't say, God is light, God is salvation, God is a fortress. He's like, no, man, he's my light. He's my salvation. He's my fortress. And all of this is so vivid, too, right? Like a fortress, you picture that. Just this impenetrable city with walls and scaffolding and everything else. And it's just like, man, that's where I'm safe. That's where I'm okay in the stuff of life, because God is my fortress. 
when I feel like I can't be rescued, God will be my rescuer. And when I feel like I'm traveling in the dark, God is my light. See, I love that image of light in particular because we all get it, right? It's such a simple metaphor. Like in Star Wars, George Lucas knew there's the dark side and the light side. And the light side's the good guys, the dark side, that's the bad guys. In our movies where somebody dies, what does everybody say? Go to the light. Nobody says, go to the dark, unless you hate them, right? So that doesn't happen. Lord of the Rings, I love Lord of the Rings, the light of Alindia, it'll guide you through dark places. Even in horror movies, man, where do all the dumb people go? Into the dark room where the scary person is. You know, like if I was in a horror movie, the first thing I'd be like, where's the lit room? I'm going there, you know, like that's it. And in fact, it reminds me of like how this reality about light and how it transforms uh, kind of the landscape is even found in how it shapes your fear versus the relief of fear. So for example, uh, years ago, we used to be a camping family and then we turned into a trailer family. And now we've turned into just go to other places in the world and stay in hotels family. But, but when we were a camping family, inevitably what would happen would be like two in the morning, right? You're in your tent, it's dark, it's dark outside. And then you hear noise in the bushes. And in that darkness, your fear grabs a hold of you and you're like, that's gotta be a bear. That, that's gotta be a cougar, right? And so you're petrified, you don't know what to do, but you're like, I can't just stay here because I can hear them breathing outside of the tent. And so you find a flashlight because you don't want to flash dark, you want a flashlight. So you grab a flashlight, you unzip the tent, turn on the light, and you see the raging beast is a bunny, right? And, and you're just like, oh, but you sounded so terrifying in the dark. But when the light exposes it, you realize you had nothing truly to fear. See, this is the great thing about this metaphor of light because it, it, it rips the darkness open and exposes what's really there, lets you objectively see what's happening in your world. And so for us then, as people who are seeking God to be our light, we realize that light is the antidote to our fear or the light of God is the antidote to our fear. And so when David says this right from the get-go, he says light and salvation and fortress, he's just saying God is true, God is safe, God is secure, God is illuminating, especially when life is anxious or uncertain or tumultuous or frustrating or confusing or downright unfair. Because that's going to be David's space. I don't know what all is driving his, his problems in this psalm, but clearly there's a heavy weight on him. But he's thrusting toward God, and he's going to God who is his refuge, who drives away the fears that are lurking in his dark thoughts. He is the God who rescues, even when David feels like he's going under, and he is the God who secures, even when everything feels like it's falling apart. Right? And, and so this is, again, that thing for us to remember, because it's really easy to get pulled into all of that, that gravity of weight, and we, we lose sight of the fact that God is giving us some resources that we can find strength in. And so what David is doing, in essence, is he's kind of saying to himself, maybe even preaching to himself more than thinking to himself, because that's what gets us in trouble. We tend to think to ourselves so much, and we don't pray and preach to ourselves enough, and then we get into deeper waters because of it, but he's resisting that. And he's saying, Matt, if I stand with God, I know God is standing with me. And, and part of the root of this is even realizing that we need to put our fears in different places. Um, I remember years ago, this is probably 14 years ago, um, you know, back before Redemption Church was, we were a different congregation, we were part of a denomination, and it was a tremendously fatiguing time, personally, 
Lots of frustration, lots of fear, lots of, man, things just coming at you. And it was kind of in that time that, that my wife was reading the book of Isaiah, and she came across a passage in the New Living Translation, and she's like, Matt's got to hear this. This is the right passage for him at this time. And so this is what it says in chapter 8, starting at verse 11. He says, The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He said... Do not be afraid of the plans that they conceive behind closed doors, that thinking that will be your end, which is easy for us to do, right? We can be all conspiracy-laden. Oh, they've got ideas here. They're driving stuff there. They've got an agenda, whatever it is. This is where we get ourselves in trouble. He's like, don't go down that road. He says, don't fear anything except the Lord Almighty. He is the Holy One. If you fear Him, you need fear nothing else, for He will keep you safe. Again, in life, there are many things to fear, and sometimes we kind of gin up extra fears because we're listening to voices that are telling us to fear. And then we spin down all kinds of roads. We fear the economy issues. We fear cultural issues. We fear global issues. We fear environmental issues. We fear family issues, friendship issues. You name it, we can fear it. And like Isaiah is saying, that's super inefficient. Instead of fearing a hundred things, once you fear one thing, which is God, and if you fear just God, all these other fears are going to take care of themselves in a different way because you're going to be trusting him more than you're worrying about those, which I think is brilliant. Now, this idea of fearing God, it's multifaceted, right? So in one sense, you could go, well, God is God and I am not, and there should be a kind of a tear sense of God. And I go, that's true. But you know what? There's all these other versions too. Like, I don't want to let him down. I don't want to be disappointing. I, I, I don't want to miss out on what he has for me. I don't want to waste my life getting all wrapped up in all this stuff when I should just be wrapped up in him. Like, all of that can be a part of the idea of what it means to fear God. What I just know from this is if I fear him, I am fearless in everything else. I'm fearless when it comes to the stuff of life, right? So, from this, we see David, David continues. And he continues by confronting fear with chosen courage. That's the second point in your notes. Confronting fear, not just with courage, but chosen courage. Verse 2. When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I'm attacked, I will remain confident. So notice this. He isn't just say, simply saying, you know what, I won't get attacked. Like, there's always a margin of error in this whole thing. Like, God may say, my will is for you to be attacked, David. But he's like, I'm still going to have courage because I'm putting my courage in God. No matter what happens, I know he's looking out for me. But you've got to understand that verse 1 is tethered to verses 2 and 3. So he makes this declaration, God is my God, my strength, my light, my fortress, so I'm not going to be afraid, but I'm going to choose to be confident. But he's leaning into that. He's making this, again, this conscious decision, right? So he's, he's saying, all right, I, I need to confront this actively, actively in my faith, because it's easy to just, again, succumb to fear. So I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna really try to focus and zero in on this idea of displaying faith. I'm not gonna look at my problems and just deny that they're there. That's not what we're doing here. Part of this, he's looking exactly at the problems. He's got enemies. He's got issues before him. And he can register that, acknowledge that, but then he's going to choose courage in the face of that anyway. And when he chooses courage, I want us to understand the courage isn't an emotion, I think that's what we tend to think. Like, I'll have courage when I feel courage. No, I think what courage is, is this conscious decision to do a thing, and in doing the thing, then you might actually find that you feel this thing as you do it. 
In fact, I was reading one great American philosopher, John Wayne, who said this. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway, right? And, and I think that's exactly what it is. You can choose to fret, you can choose to fear about what could happen, but that only wears you out more. Uh, my daughter is a big fan of the Harry Potter lore, and there's a character, Newt Scalamander, in there that talks about this. He says, worry only makes you suffer twice. You worry about the thing that might happen, and then if it actually happens, you worry again. But it may not happen. And many times, the thing we most worry about never happens. But boy, how much misery do we put ourselves through worrying about a thing that never was a thing? Instead, we should face all of the things that may cause us to worry with courage, trusting God to deliver, right? And so David is looking to God, and he's saying to himself, basically, if God is for me, who can be against me? Now, what I don't want us to do with this is say, wow, that is a really awesome pep talk. That is like a Tony Robbins special all the way. Just think positive thoughts and everything's gonna go good. No, this isn't just positive thinking. Again, it's this sense of resolve about, I know God is this, and I know he's gonna do that, and I'm just going to focus on what he's going to do. And I'm gonna focus on God as I navigate this painful time in life. And so from this, what he's doing is number three in your notes, he's displacing life's fears with God's fortitude. He, dis he displaces literally the fears of life with the fortitude of God. Verse four, he says, the one thing that I ask of the Lord, the thing that I seek the most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Now imagine if somebody came to you and they said, all right, uh, I'm, I'm moving forward in life what is the one thing I most need to succeed in life and to have the most maximized life possible? What advice would you give them? Would you say, make sure you get an education that's an actual skill that actually can make money? Or would you say, make sure you choose the right partner? Uh, make sure you uh, are well-rounded in life. Make sure you're, you're kind. Make sure you're tolerant. Make sure you're friendly with all the people around you, right? Make sure uh, you put family first, American dream. I, what advice would you give? See, what I love about what David's getting at here is he says, man, if there's only one thing that I seek, only one thing I prioritize, only one thing I make the primary thing of my life, he says it would be a single-minded devotion to asking and seeking for God. His presence in my life would be the priority of all that I do. Because notice what he says. He says, I want to dwell in the presence of God. I want to gaze on the glory of God. I want to inquire of the wisdom of God. Like he just is helping us out because there are so many things we prioritize in life. And sometimes what we do is we prioritize all this stuff. And we try to figure out where does God tuck in somewhere underneath all this stuff that I prioritize. And David's like, right, this is the problem. If God is first, all this other stuff works out differently than if God is like 15th and you're trying to push him to the surface, all, all that other stuff somehow. It's like, no, I'm going to seek this one thing no matter what I do in life. I think it's valuable because I know in my own life I have plenty of distractions and preoccupations and not all of those are bad or wrong or sinful, right? Sometimes they're benign. Sometimes they're even kind of good things, but they can get in the way of truly God things. And David doesn't want to do that. And so he knows that God is the most meaningful pursuit he can have because he knows it's going to pay compounding dividends. In fact, he goes on into verse 5, and he has a certainty about God. He says, For he will conceal me 
when troubles come. And he will hide me in his sanctuary, and he will place me out of the reach on a high rock. So again, more kind of images and visions, high, conceal, lift up when the waters are rising. But here's the thing that I think is important about this, and I know it's true to my own life. Uh, This whole pressing into God doesn't just happen. It's not like an autopilot thing, like, hey man, I'm a Christian, so God just kind of presses his life into my life in this very conscientious way, and I don't have to do anything. No, it's this idea of he's going to God, he's in pursuit. He wants to abide in God as God is abiding with him. And for us as New Testament people, we see Jesus says in John 15, he's like, man, abide in me as I abide in you. And then he gives us a set of things that kind of develop the abiding, right? So when we pray and we seek and we obey and we, we long for, that's more of the abiding element. It's a sense of heart wanting to connect with the stuff of God. And so he seeks to abide And as you're pressing into God, then it's kind of the same conclusion that David has in verse 6. He says, then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. He's like, man, now my confidence is is getting ingrained, right? At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. And so I love this because it kind of shifts from, all right, I feel pressure. I'm going to seek God to in the seeking of God. Now I know I'm going to lift up my head and I know I'm going to sing with joy. Now I know that these, these rich emotions that I'm seeking are going to follow suit with this pursuit that I've been engaging in. And so because he sought God, he doesn't succumb to his worries. Right? Now, I want to be very open with you and say that all ain't easy. It's not easy. There's going to be plenty of things that get in the way of us doing this effectively. And, and, and so we, we acknowledge that. But perhaps what we can do as we continue through the rest of the psalm is we can also see the example of David and we can kind of glean from his example and maybe apply some of those things to our existence as well. Because what he's done up to this point is he's made declarations about God to us, but now he's going to begin to make statements to God in his relationship to him. So it moves from what David is preaching to us to what David is pleading before God. But we can then go, man, I want to live by that example. I want to do the things that I see him doing. And so the first thing is we're going to see an example of a reflexive faith. The example of a reflexive faith, like a reflex, not just a decision, but this thing that he's developed in his life to where when something happens, something calls out in his heart to take a movement or an action. Verse 7, he says, Hear me as I pray, O Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, Come and talk with me. And he says, And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. I love this because so often we can see seeking God as a duty, as a responsibility, as a Christian discipline. But for David, he's like, Man, when you tell me to seek you and talk to you, something leaps inside of me. It's not just simply like, I'm obeying. It's like, no, I need this thing. I crave this thing. I know my safety and security is found in doing this thing. And I think that's a reflex. Now, like with everything, we probably get better with our reflexes as we're doing more things or doing this thing more often, like a muscle memory. So in the same way, we want to pursue God often. So when he says, hey, man, you got to come and talk to me about this, we go, yes, my heart leaps. That's what I want to do. Now, this is going to be... Um, a contested practice in life. 
In other words, there's gonna be many things that want to get in the way of us doing this very thing, of having this reflexive faith and, and going to God as soon as he calls into our hearts because the world's gonna wanna distract us and the flesh is gonna wanna weaken us and the devil's gonna wanna cause us to kind of wonder if God even cares or if we're too messed up for him to actually make an investment, all of that's there. And so we need to assertively and aggressively push back. And so we're shooting for a reflexive faith and part of the way this is developed is in the next example of David. It's a demanding faith, right? He literally kind of starts to make certain kind of demands of God. Verse nine, he says, do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. I love the, the assertiveness here because he's like, listen, I know what it's like with you, and I know it's like apart from you, and I know sometimes I've done things where the distance is created because you're like, dude, I'm clearing space because you're going down the road of your own city. He goes, but I don't want that. I want you. Please don't leave me in the dust. What I dig about this is ultimately, he's not as interested in rescue as the rescuer, right? Because there's a difference. Sometimes we just want out of the problem. But David wants the problem solver. That's what gives him comfort. That's what gives him security in the stuff of life. And so, man, he's got this demanding faith. God, don't leave me. God, don't forsake me. God, don't ditch me. No, I need you to be with me. From here, he goes into the example of a confident faith. Verse 10. He says, even if my father and mother abandoned me, which some versions say, even though my father and mother have abandoned me. So I'm like, maybe he had some issues with his parents. I don't know. But even if that's the case... He says, the Lord will hold me close. It's like he knows that God will always be a prodigal father. We use that word prodigal so often in the negative. It just means lavish. Like there's this prodigal son. He lived a lavish life. But then you see the prodigal father in the story who lavishly showed love and forgiveness and care to a wayward kid. And, and that's gonna be God in our life. He is the prodigal father to our sometimes prodigal lives. And David knows that, man, this is who God is. He's going to hold me close. And so I'm going to lean into him. More than this, he wants God to be his mentor as well. It's the example of a progressing faith, verse 11. He says, teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path for my enemies are waiting for me. Don't let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I've never done, and with every breath they threaten me with violence. Teach me. Lead me. Again, I have sincerely had people in my life who historically have been like enemies like they actually are saying we want your bad and in those times you're very tempted to fight fire with fire right you're very tempted to say all right you're a threat and i'm going to threaten the threatener right that, that's a normal human emotion that's a normal worldly way to get business done but david doesn't want to do it that way so again he wants the father more than he wants the fixer and so he's saying teach me teach me to do it right and in that, straighten my crooked ways. Those are the wrong responses or emotions or, or replies that David could have in the circumstances. Like, God, don't let me make this worse, which is what we're pretty good at doing as people. Digging the hole deeper. He's like, I don't want to dig the hole deeper, God. I want you to teach me. I want you to show me. I want you to guide me in this process. From here, we see the example of a certain faith, a certain assured type of faith. He says in verse 13, yet I am confident. I will see the, the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. Again, he just rolls it back to, all right, God, I know you're gonna look out for me. And can I tell you what I love about this? He says, I'm gonna see it 
in the land of the living. He doesn't say, I'm going to see it in death, and then I'll be before the glory and everything will make sense. He has this confidence that God's actually going to step into his earthly concern here. And I love it. It's why I'm always saying, hey, man, life is better with Jesus. I focus on this so much because I'm like, he came to step into your life and to, in fact, enhance your life, to help you navigate the crud of life, to do things differently in life, to live like him in the, the confines and problems of life. And so there's this confidence of David that in this life you're going to show up, and we should have the same confidence that, God, in my life you're going to show up. Yes, life in Christ means you're going to outlive this life. But Jesus didn't just die so you would have an afterlife. He, he died and rose and came to live in you so you would have a life in this life too, right? And, and so in the land of the living, he believes God is going to show up on the scene and aid him. So it's faith and confidence and conviction, and it drives out fear and faithlessness. But it all comes down to this last thing, the final verse, which is pausing and pressing till the end. We need to be pausing and at the same time pressing as we move to the end. Verse 14. He says, wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. See, that middle verse is, is so um, uh, inspiring, right? It's like, yeah, that's right. We're going to be brave and courageous in the face of what life is throwing at us. We should. But then twice he says, and be patient. Because I think sometimes we think, man, if I'm being prayerful, faithful, bold, strong, this is all going to clear up in like six weeks. And sometimes it's like, that might be six years, man. That might be 60 years, depending on what's coming your way. What, which is why I think twice he says, be patient. Be patient. See, I, I take this to heart. There, there was a number of years ago I read a book. And it was actually some dude's PhD dissertation. And he looked at the early church for the first 300 years. And he looked at all of the writings that he could kind of muster during the course of that time. And he was trying to understand evangelism in the early church. Because that's been the fastest time Christianity has ever spread in the world. was actually during the first 300 years as far as percentages, right? So he's like, what makes it tick? And he was shocked to find that they wrote very little about evangelism, actually. And they wrote heavily about patience. Patience. And you go, well, why? And here's what he at least had as his conclusion was the most powerful display of the gospel was people who followed Jesus in patience. In other words, as Rome was wiping them out, as different cultures rejected them, as life was crushing them, instead of them reacting in fear, getting frustrated, taking up arms, going against their enemies, they endured loving their enemies in patience. They knew it might take hundreds of years. They may come and die at 25 under the sword, and yet another one's going to step up in patience, and they might die at 26 under the sword, and another one's going to step up in patience. They're going to keep modeling patience and trust in God no matter what they do. And from that, eventually, the Roman Empire says, we're too tired attacking them. How do we become like them? How do we embrace what it is that has transformed their life so much and given them this radical patience? That was the driver of the explosion of their mission in the early church. Sometimes it means we just have to be patient, trusting, seeking, looking, hungering, thirsting, panting after God, as David says elsewhere in the Psalms. But I know that patience is hard. It's hard, especially in our world today. Like, I remember, like, the first house that Ellen and I ever purchased, right? It took, like, weeks to get a loan. Now you go online, and, like, in 30 minutes, they let you know, yes or no, right? Right? crazy 
popcorn. It used to take a while, like, on the stove, and you'd shake that Jiffy Pop like a crazy person. Now you just hit the button on the microwave, and you walk away, and you come back, and like, oh, the bag's filled. Look at that. Amazing, right? Back in the day, I used to have to go to the library to get answers to questions. Dewey Decimal System? Like, our kids don't even know what that is, man. Right? Now you're just going to Google, all right, in one second, I got a bunch of ideas. Patience is hard, which is why I believe that patience must be practiced. I've, I've shared... Uh, when I go to Safeway, if I get in a line, I pick the longest line to practice patience. When I'm driving on the 405, I pick the slow lane to practice patience. I'm not kidding, unless I'm in a real hurry, and then I don't practice patience. <laughs> but I realized I had to graft it in. I have to learn to stop, to hold, to pause. It's why I took everything off my phone. So I just sit in the moment. Because who wants to sit in the moment? I want to find the next thing. I'm going to move on to the next knowledge, the nice little bit, the next little news site, news source, news thing, sports score, whatever it is. But there's something about just waiting, pausing, practicing that, and then bringing it into your faith where you're waiting on God. And maybe things aren't changing at the rate that you want, but you're patient anyway. You're waiting on him anyway. You're letting him work in the margins of your soul anyway. And it's in that space that, man, he grows and grooms our faith and faithfulness all the more. Let's go ahead and bow our heads right now. Close our eyes. And as we do, I want to first start off with anybody that might be watching online or anybody that's in the room where you're like, man, I'm here today. I'm listening today. I'm not a God follower. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Bible person, whatever it is. But you sense like, man, I need that thing that you were talking about today, right? I, 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 I need to find my confidence and conviction and faith in something beyond the tools that I try to find in this life because they're not paying off. If that's you and you're sensing that pull, man, for you, the, 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 the change is a prayer way where you just simply say, all right, Jesus, I acknowledge I've been going my own way, doing my own thing. That, that, that you have a design for life and I have broken away from that design. And I don't follow you and I don't fulfill what it is you want for me, but but. I want that to change today. I want you to step into my life and forgive me for all of my, my foolishness or my mistakes or my clumsy living, the ways that I've gone against you or I've gone against my neighbor or I've gone against my enemies. Tired of handling it like I handle it. I want you, Jesus, to handle things as you want me to handle those. If that is your sense of things today, my encouragement is you simply say, Jesus, I confess. I confess that I have been the, the Lord of my life and I want you to be the Lord of my life. I have gone my own way and sinned against you and you are the solution for that problem. Your cross and resurrection changes everything. You make that your prayer in your way. He hears you, brings you into the family. We would love to know that. And so I'll be at the door afterward or there's gonna be a number on the screen afterward or there's a tile in our app and you can say, I chose to follow Jesus today. We'd love to know if you made that your decision. For the rest of us, Jesus, I just pray that we are practicing what we see from David here. Our friend David has all sorts of raw emotions. He has good days and bad days, just like the rest of us. He has frustrations and fears, but he also has great, tremendous uh, kind of faith and resilience and conviction. And I pray that we lean into those best qualities as seen there in his message. That we will follow his example and we will seek you in life. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you in your good name.